Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our Wednesday series, walking through James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes. And here, the team will be talking about typology and looking at chapter four, The World as God's House. We do want to make you aware of our upcoming intensive course in the month of March with Peter Lightheart as he explores Pauline theology with a focus on Romans and Galatians. A link with more information and registration can be found in the show notes. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers discussing Through New Eyes. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James Bijan. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording, and uh, we'll be editing and smoothing things out. Uh, we are in the middle of a series on James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes. We've gone through several chapters of the book, describing our experience with Jim's work and our appreciation of Jim's work, and also uh, discussing some of the major themes of each chapter. And in this episode, we're discussing chapter four, titled The World as God's House. This is the beginning of part two of the book, which is called Features of the World. Uh, And there's a a lot to talk about in the chapter, but I wanted to zero in on something that he talks about toward the end of the chapter, because I think it's, it's really crucial for understanding what kind of biblical work uh, Jim does and what he's inspired in uh, those of us who have been following in his work and learning from him for so many years. Uh, and that is his understanding of typology. When I try to describe in one word what uh, what we do at Theopolis and the kind of hermeneutical perspective that we do, I, I use the word typology. But I don't think that that entirely communicates what we're doing and what's distinctive about what we're trying to do, at least uh, the way that typology is normally understood. Alistair and I had a video some years ago where we went through trying to define exactly what it was that uh, made us uh, made the Theopolitan hermeneutic distinctive, and we talked about different facets of it. But I think if we if we if we understand typology in the way that Jim presents it, then I think that is I think really central to what's distinctive about his understanding of the world and of scriptural interpretation. And because Theopolis depends so much on Jim's work, uh, it's what's distinctive about our work. And the, the crucial point I think is that typology. In the minds of a lot of Christians, I think typology is a method of reading. It's a method of Christological reading of the scriptures based on uh, Luke 24. So what you're doing when you're reading the Bible is looking for shadows and foreshadowings, types and anti-types of Christ. That's absolutely true. And when I teach hermeneutics, that Luke 24 is one of the main places I go. But when Jim said typology, he means something bigger than that. It's not just about it's not just a method of reading, and it's not narrowly a Christological reading, but it's a Christological reading of the Scriptures that uh, encompass typology becomes a kind of cosmological principle for Jim. It becomes a principle of historical development. Because it's a principle of historical development, the church's mission and uh, the Christian's political vocation, the church's political vocation, is encompassed within the realm of typology. So when we're reading typologically, we're not just reading for snapshots of Jesus, which is a way that Jim 
we'll put uh, traditional typology the way he describes it uh, somewhere else in the book. We're not just looking for snapshots of Jesus that are found in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New. It's a way of understanding the whole cosmos. And let me just briefly give a couple of examples of what I mean. One of the things that Jim talks about in this chapter is the relationship between heaven and earth, and heaven as the pattern uh, that is glimpsed by prophetic figures like Moses or David or Ezekiel or John. They see this heavenly pattern, which then they bring down to earth. And that's a, kind, that's a typological relationship. Uh, heaven is the model, and it impresses its form. It imprints its form on earth. And that's the reason why these prophets are going up into the up on the mountain or up into heaven, so they can see the heavenly things and they can bring those heavenly things down to earth. But that's a typological relationship. But that's that's a principle, that's a cosmological principle. That's that's the nature of reality. That there are two realms that God made. In the beginning, God made heaven and the earth. And the goal is for the earth to become imprinted with the influences of heaven. So uh, their typology becomes a kind of cosmological principle or concept. And it's also a historical concept because one of the ways that Jim puts this in the book and elsewhere is that uh, what we're looking at, we're looking at typology are repeated patterns of God's actions in history. It's not just that the stories are told in the Bible with these repeated patterns, but the stories are told with those repeated patterns because those repeated patterns actually exist in the events of history. And so by learning the rhythms of, uh, of the Bible, learning the rhythms of God's actions as they record in Scripture, we begin to learn the rhythms of how history works and learn the rhythm. We learn the rhythms of Israel's history and Israel's interactions with the nations. And we begin to anticipate the cycles and the movements of the church's history and the church's history in its worldwide mission to disciple the nations. So um, those are just a couple of a couple of glimpses. We'll talk, fill that out more, and what we have to say in the rest of the episode. But I, I really think that's that uh, understanding of typology is crucial because it it gives us this much thicker and bigger understanding of what typology is about. Yeah, just a quick comment, Peter. I was glad that you mentioned um, the aspect of pattern inherent in typology, which I was going to mention as well because I think, as we were saying last time round, there is this. Uh, um, accusation or, or misunderstanding or whatever it is, that typology is this very subjective endeavour that could go any old way. Um, and yet bringing in the the, um, the dimension of pattern, I think adds a, a check to it, a balance to it, but but also just an objectivity to it. Pattern is, is not just something that's subjective. You know, I, I can test for patterns Mathematically, I can find correlations between two variables. And identifying patterns in the world is so fundamental to our experience. You know, someone who um, is nuts on conspiracy theory or something has a, you know, an overactive, uh, overzealous pattern identification um, tendency. Someone who doesn't properly understand what's going on or, or understand kind of implications in what people's saying often have a, a kind of pattern detection ability that doesn't work quite quite correctly and and uh, can be very naive and, and and so on and I think that um coupling those two things together symbol and pattern is, is something that's that's really helpful and, and fundamental to what Jim's talking about here one of the important sources for Jim's uh, discussion in this chapter is uh, the work of Meredith Klein, 
and particularly his book, Images of the Spirit, which was published, I think, back in the mid-70s, maybe. And it's a study of the image of God. That's one of the central themes, but it's the image of God in terms of the biblical descriptions of glory and uh, the forms that glory takes in the Bible, the glory cloud that leads Israel through the wilderness, that's a cloud of uh, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, the glory that descends on Mount Sinai, the glory that uh, uh, Ezekiel sees at the river Kibar, that repeated theme is uh, part of the image of God in, in Klein's work. And, and with the way Jim uses that, again, is to kind of plug it into this cosmological principle that I mentioned. He links it up with the fact that the uh, spirit uh, in Genesis 1, 1, and 2, the spirit is the the one, the person of the Trinity who proceeds from heaven, which is God's dwelling place, to the earth, and by proceeding from heaven to earth is bringing heaven uh, to earth and imprinting the the pattern of heaven onto earth. And uh, you couple that with the biblical association between the spirit and the glory, which is, uh, that's Klein's theme. And what you have is the the glory of heaven is being mediated to earth by the spirit so the Spirit's work is to glorify earth so that it becomes, comes to resemble the glorious original, the original glory that's in heaven. And uh, you see that beginning right at the beginning of creation when God speaks, let there be light. The Spirit's radiating that light, Jim's arguing, and the Spirit radiating that light is the first stage of the heavenization of earth. Uh, the first heavenly thing that comes down to earth is the light that's mediated by the Spirit, by the glory of God. Uh, and then the rest of the creation week is uh, reshaping the formless void dark of creation into at least an, an initial replica of heaven. But constantly the the history of the world is constantly the spirit, the spirit working with human beings to bring the influences of heaven and the glory of heaven and imprinting that on the earth to glorify the earth. An important dimension of all of this is the way in which this sort of typology and symbolism allows for the movement of meaning from one level to another. So we might think about the temple, for instance, and the way that the temple is connected with the order of the cosmos. It's related with the order of heaven itself. It's related with the order of the body. It's related with the order of the nation. And in each one of those levels, there is this transmission of meaning from between those levels. So we might think about the way that in the New Testament, on several occasions, the connection between the temple and the body is made. For instance, Christ talks about destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Or Paul talking about the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit or the individual Christian's body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. All of those sorts of movement of meaning are allowed for by the existence of, of typology, which works in a different way from the sort of abstract logic that we're used to. It's more a concrete logic where analogy and um, those sorts of connections are always operative. And so when we look at the human body, we can see all sorts of analogies with the temple. The temple in the Holy of Holies has something akin to a heart or a mind treasuring something. And the um, holy place, there are the five tables and lampstands on each side, like the digits of your hand, and there's connection with the lampstand and the eye. All these sorts of connections are invited by an order of typology that, as a result, enables us to 
see ourselves as being implicated in the order of the cosmos. We're like the sun, moon, and stars, and the the righteous are compared to stars at many points in scripture. Or we might think about the way that the body is akin to the body of the worshipping community, and so the church can be seen as one body with many members. And that sort of thinking, which is pervasive throughout the scripture, is fundamentally typological. Can't help but notice, too, once again, how important the doctrine of creation is for Jim, but not just the doctrine of creation, the narrative of Genesis 1. And his reading of Genesis 1 informs everything he does with typology. And I remember first hearing him or first reading him go through Genesis 1, sentence by sentence, day by day, and explaining what was happening. And I'd never heard that before. I'd never considered it. You know, if you're going to read Genesis 1 as a later polemic against Egyptian gods or against pagan gods, you know, written during the time of, of uh, Moses, then you're going to miss all this. It's, it's not going to, you're, you're not going to develop the same kind of symbolic worldview uh, that Jim has if you don't see this. If you're going to read uh, the second day of creation uh, about the rakia, and you're going to, the expanse, the, the, uh, the ferment, and you're going to read that and think, well, what's happening is he's just, uh, the author here is just incorporating and incorporating into the narrative something about ancient Near Eastern understanding of, of, the, uh, of the world as three-deck, a three-decker universe and this being some kind of a hard shell above the earth. Or, you know, there's all sorts of ways that people do that. Well, then you're going to be so preoccupied with the ancient Near Eastern connections that you fail to actually read through the text itself and see what's being said um, and how everything is connected together and what God's activity is actually doing in the world and how that's all a setup, the presupposition, the, the basic setup for everything that happens after this in the Bible, uh, you know, and as Alistair mentioned. The, the altars, the tabernacle, the temple, and the body politic, and the, just everything. And Jesus himself as the one who comes from heaven, is a heavenly man, he's a spirit-filled man. All of this is connected, and it all begins in a way of reading Genesis 1. And it's one, of, one of the challenges I've had just in training seminary students and interns is to try to get them to read this in a way um, that takes it at face value, and 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 uh, you're not always reading it and thinking about modern scientific questions or issues, and you're not reading it and thinking about how it might be some sort of apologetic polemic against pagan gods. Of course, it can function in a secondary sense uh, in that way. But just reading it and figuring out what is being said about God's activity and the world and the world as God's house, as Jim puts it in chapter four. Yeah, Jeff, I, I wonder if um, in that sense, what we've got in Jim's book is just a very helpful model for doing good Christian biblical apologetics. Um, you mentioned, I think last time around, that when you were at seminary maybe or, or some 
sort of Bible college, a lot of it was kind of quite defensive. So a course on Isaiah might begin with many weeks about how two Isaiah theories don't stack up or issues about dating and whether the language does or doesn't contain enough loan words to be dated at some century rather than some other century. And this just strikes me as a more, like Jim's way of going through things, just strikes me as a more positive apologetic. And so it does ultimately address and get to the same issues, but just in a way that doesn't kind of skip over the actual content of the biblical text, but just starts from it and and builds in a more positive way rather than almost starting from skeptical arguments and then seeking to deconstruct them yeah i think that's a really good point uh, the, and it's it's apologetic without um without intending to be apologetic it's just ex- expounding the scriptures and as you say the apologetic force of that comes through just in the process of showing how showing the tapestry of scripture and explaining how things fit together and and what and one of the things that I found over the years is recognizing those interconnections of different parts of scripture and recognize it as a unified whole enables you to 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 address some of the challenges that come, you know, about uh, multiple multiple sources, uh, you know, uh, historical anomalies and those kinds of things. Some of those can be resolved by recognizing the way that the Bible is put together. And look, this is something that lay people. Uh, non-seminary educated parishioners, they can get this. Once they get it, once they start seeing these connections, like Alistair was talking about before, between uh, the spirit, the firmament, the the tabernacle temple, the glory cloud, and what's going on inside the glory cloud, his chariot throne, and, you know, Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 8 and Ezekiel 11, and, um, and, and Exodus 24 and all this stuff. Once they start seeing this, they, they can, it makes sense to them. We're not, um, it, it's not so overly academic and intellectual uh, in, the, in the ancient Near Eastern kind of discipline sense that they don't really need that. All they need to do is, and somebody needs to do that. I'm not saying that ancient Near Eastern studies are, are wrong or unhelpful. I mean, we did get a lot of our understanding of, seeks our good modern understanding of biblical covenants and other things through, and so did Meredith Klein through interaction with uh, ancient Near Eastern sources. I'm not I'm not dissing that, but um, but people can make the connections. I, I remember Jim always saying this: says people with their Bibles open are much smarter than you than a lot of Christian academics and especially Reformed Christian academics take them to be. They, they can see things, they can make connections, they can understand illusions. Um, and if you let them, if you let them do it and help them see it, you can do it. If, if you treat them like dummies, you know, if you're always throwing Latin phrases at them, or Greek, even Greek and Hebrew phrases at them, uh, then of course, they might think you're, you know, you walk on water in terms of academics. But that doesn't really help them understand the Bible any better. And Starting with Genesis 1 and teaching people to read through the Bible in the way that Jim has outlined uh, opens up the Bible to people in ways that they'd never thought possible because um, they thought it was too much or too too uh, too difficult for them. But it, as it turns out, once you start connecting things, 
things start falling into place for people. I've noticed that. So, for instance, you mentioned Genesis 1, and following the creation days, we can see something of the sort of movement down that Jim discusses in this chapter, the way in which on the first day you have the creation of light, and there's a sort of archetypal light there, uh, light that could be seen as the Shekinah glory, that then is on the fourth day expressed with the light-giving bodies of the sun, moon, and stars. And then on day six, you have the creation of man, and the creation of man and woman corresponds with the greater and lesser light of the fourth day in a number of respects. And so later on in the book of Genesis, we have the sun, moon, and stars compared to um, Jacob, his wife, and the 11 sons that bow down to Joseph. And so we have a very clear step down with analogies on each level. So just as the sun, moon, and stars rule in the firmament of the heavens, they represent something of the the light of the first day in the higher heavens, and then they represent, or humankind represents something of the sun, moon, and stars on the realm of the earth and the seas. And as we go through the text of Genesis again, we have Abraham told to look up at the stars and see something in the stars of what his descendants will be. They will be not just numerous like the stars, but they will be numerous and ruling like the stars. And that sort of analogy is there from page one. And once you become clued in to these very basic patterns that are taking place, it's very easy to notice. And I think, as you say, Jeff, these are things that people with their Bibles open And children are good at noticing many of these things. Um, They'll be able to see things that maybe scholars who have just gotten into a fairly rigid pattern of thought, they might miss these things entirely. Right, which is part of the beauty of scripture in so many ways, isn't it? Whereas some children, depends on how they are, of course, might not understand the flow of Romans or something particularly easily, they will get narratives and symbols and imagery very easily. And um, something that struck me going through this chapter, which is pretty much what you just said, Alistair, I'd never thought of it before, the the way in which um, when God creates the sun, moon and stars, this is a copy of a heavenly reality. So we have the God who is light and he is the source of light in days one to three and then that is replicated in a physical way um in in day four in the creation of light and i I just never thought about that before it's obviously an unusual detail of the creation week that we have um light prior to the creation of the sun moon and stars and yet it's obviously uh telling out an important theological lesson yeah, the, just to add a wrinkle to that, I think that, um, I mean, that's kind of a classic crux of Genesis 1. This goes back to a comment Jeff made about uh, how important the details of Genesis 1 are to Jim's entire understanding of Scripture as a whole. And uh, I mean, there's a crux. The, how is there light without sun, moon, and stars? It must be some other kind of light. It must be the light of angelic illumination. Uh, it must be something other than the physical light we know. And I think that misses the very point of the whole sequence, which is, as you say, James, um, 
God is the illuminator of the earth at the beginning. God is light, and the glory of the Spirit is the is the alternating light, alternating with darkness for the first three days. What happens on the fourth day is that that task of separating light and darkness is delegated to creatures, to sun, moon, and stars, which is, as I've been studying through Genesis in, in detail over the last couple of years, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 in particular, uh, that's a recurring theme that what God is doing, he delegates to creatures to do. And you miss that crucial point um, when you when you uh, gloss over that uh, the sequence, when you try to smudge together the different days into one, when you deny that the light that's coming in days one through three is is the same physical light as the light of day days four and following, you miss that you miss that crucial thing. You miss the crucial thing that this is again, as you said, James, this is a heavenly reality that's being reflected on Earth. I, w- I want to go back to something we talked about in the last episode a bit, and just talk about the well we talked about in, the, in several episodes now, the effect of our, an encounter with this book. And I do remember the first reading it and being filled with this kind of awe at the way, the specific ways that every moment I'm being confronted by a revelation of God. I mean, Alexander Schmemann goes so far as to say the creation is a theophany. Jim doesn't, Jim doesn't go that far, but there, there's definitely a, there's almost a theophanic dimension because the world as a whole is is manifesting and reflecting and making God present to us. Uh, and just the, the way that he describes, Jim describes the heavenly, the visible heavens. We look up in the sky and we see clouds, and thinking in biblical terms, we're constantly put in mind of the presence of God in the glory cloud. We see light shining through clouds, and we're put in mind of the glory that led Israel through the wilderness, the glory, the shining, lightning-filled, thunderous glory of uh, that, that settled on Sinai. We, we see a thundercloud, and we think of all the imagery of thunder clouds and the God riding on the clouds and making the lightning his arrows. So just one one phenomenon of the heavens, of the visible heavens, clouds, and we're put in mind of this whole sequence of events in the Bible, this whole sequence of events of God's relation to Israel. We're put in mind of the heavenly things that are reflected in the visible heavens of the firmament. And there's a kind of uh, pra- the practice of the presence of God, to put it in the uh, uh, who is a brother Andrew who wrote a book, The Practice of the Presence of God. There's a spirituality that goes with this, a creation-based spirituality that this book inculcates. It's everything. You're constantly surrounded by things that are uh, putting you in mind of other things and of uh, the way that the, Bi- the Bible puts the world together and the way that the Bible reveals how the world reflects and manifests the glory of God. And this extends to the way the church has constructed the calendar year the alternation of light and dark and the connection with the church here with the the seasons of the sun and that's also i mean that that's a way that the church has has um, arranged our worship and our our going through the life of Christ in a way that makes everything when it comes to winter time you can't help but think about the birth of Jesus and when it comes to springtime, you can't help but th- think about the resurrection of Jesus. And that is a pretty remarkable and wise way of ordering our time and our, our dates and our lives through the year. And it's it's based on all of this. 
I wanted to pick up uh, one particular thread uh, that uh, is related to what I said at the beginning of the episode about the glory being the pattern that imprints itself on creation. Uh, and that takes specific form when the glory becomes the pattern for uh, earthly sanctuaries. Uh, and again, Jim is relying on the work of Meredith Klein in part here. Klein talks about not just the, the glory the glory of the spirit, the glory spirit is the is the original of which man is the image, but the glory spirit is also the original of which the tabernacle is an image. So the the tabernacle is a heavenly environment on earth. Klein extends that to the to the uh, analogous glory of the the priestly garments, the tabernacle and its furnishing and its materials. There this uh, symbolic interchange between the tabernacle and the priestly garments. So the priest is a walking, living tabernacle. The tabernacle is a an architectural priest, and both of them are images of the glory. And so Jim Jim uses that kind of insight to talk about how uh, the history of the world is a and the different epochs of biblical history are marked out by different manifestations of the glory in particular buildings. So the glory of God is the original pattern that is replicated in the tabernacle. And for a time, the tabernacle becomes the world symbol for Israel. Then the tabernacle is dismantled. Then we get another replica of the glory, uh, which is the temple. And this is a fuller and different replica of the glory. The temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And then we have a visionary temple that Ezekiel sees. And that's another that's another manifestation of the glory. And then all that is rolled into the new covenant where we have the replication of the glory now is the human temple that is the church, or the, as Alistair was saying, the temple of our individual bodies, or the temple of the uh, of the body of Christ. So the connection between the glory and the sanctuary becomes a way of understanding the development of history, and the movement from from a, a glory to glory in history is a movement from one sanctuary manifestation of the glory to a more extended and fuller manifestation of the glory in another sanctuary to a more extensive manifestation glory in another sanctuary and so on. And that's one of the differences between, at least in the way Jim defines things, between typology and allegory. We should probably just make a reference to this. One of the criticisms of Jim is that, oh, this is all subjective. It's all imaginative. Where are the guardrails? You can interpret scripture any way you want if you're looking at it in this typological, symbolic way. I've heard that many times before. But I think it is important to note that, as you mentioned, Peter, that typology here functions as a way of understanding God's orchestration of history and where it's leading. It led to Jesus and led to the church and and that, and that his understanding of of typology is not allegory in the sense that, you know, these stories, these symbols are coded ways of hiding, you know, philosophical kinds of truths, uh, philosophical ideas, uh, static uh, philosophical ideas. That's not what's going on here. One of the things that it, talk about how this it's impressed you know, how it's changed your life or changed you. You mentioned this, Peter, about you having this sense of um, of the glory all around you. One of the things that it impacted me through Jim's teaching and then, of course, through the book is an ability to now read the early church fathers 
in a way that I hadn't been able to read them before. Uh, and to recognize that um, the way they were interpreting the Bible was more like the way Paul interpreted the old Hebrew scriptures than the way modern reform people interpreted the Bible in terms of just digging out ideas um, and looking for propositional truth. And that opened up, to me at least, a whole new appreciation for patristics and for patristic exegesis. Uh, not always, obviously, uh, as well done as it could be, but much richer and much more interesting sometimes than the way a modern commentators comment on scripture. And I was able to I was able to uh, appreciate that more. I know, Peter, you've done a lot of work on that. Your deep exegesis is about that. Jim mentions at the end of this chapter, uh, Jean Danilou and his work on the early ch church fathers, which if you can, if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in this kind of thing, if you could find his books on, on that, they're, they're fascinating, fascinating studies on the way the early church fathers interpreted uh, these big events in in uh, Hebrew scripture, but wow, I just I was able to see the early church fathers with new eyes. A, a sort of alternative view that I'd like to, or uh, somewhere where maybe I differ with this chapter. I've greatly enjoyed reading it. Um, it it's commonly said, I think, that the word firmament, the word translated firmament um, in in most translations of Genesis necessarily denotes something solid and it seems to me maybe i've misread it but it seems to me that jim kind of takes that up and runs with it and says that what we have here is the language of appearance and so the bible isn't describing the sky as this sort of solid dome but it's just using a word for a dome because that's the way um the way in which it appears to us and i think kind of personally I would want to question the premise of that, whether this word firmament does actually denote something solid. Um, it, it seems to me that the argument from etymology like doesn't work, isn't a good one. And it seems to me actually that the, the way the Bible uses that term, it refers to things that are in the midst of the firmament, not kind of under a dome, but in the midst of um, that word for firmament, actually kind of assumes it to be this expanse this sort of open vault rather than something solid um i don't think much necessarily hangs on that but that's some, somewhere where i'd personally perhaps like to adopt a slightly different approach to that which is taken in this chapter yeah i think that goes back to something we discussed maybe in the first episode when we talked about jim's contrast between scientific descriptions and phenomenological descriptions and early in the book, he, he makes the case that the phenomenological, or at least I take him to be saying that the phenomenological descriptions are not just um, the appearance of things, but they're actually true. And, and I, I'm, I'll bring up again what I always bring up. The sun does rise, um, regardless of what cosmology we're using, the experience of human beings on the earth with given that, that, uh, that spatial reference point, the sun begins low on the horizon, goes up, and then goes back down. So the sun rises and sets, and that's there's nothing apparent about that. That's actually true. So, I, yeah, I agree with you that the uh, I preferred that approach to saying that it's just a matter of appearance. 
I mean, I'm curious uh, to know more about the, uh, ed- the about the rakia, the word for firmament, because I've always heard it to mean uh, the argument that it means something beat out and flattened. I should say to, too, though, that uh, Jim Jim does say at, um, in some later work, uh, citing Psalm 150, uh, I think it's Psalm 150, where it connects the the sanctuary with the firmament. Uh, so the argument is the firmament is not just a, a a shell, a dome, but it has depth, and it's actually a cha- as you said a chamber within within which are the lights. Which you know that fits with the way that Jim talks about the relationship between heaven and the firmament and the sanctuary. Uh, you have the you have the um, the lights of the sanctuary, which are representing the heavenly lights, which are an image of the ultimately ultimate light in. Uh, in the highest heavens, or the angels in the highest heavens, so uh, that kind of that kind of imagery would fit. So, but I'd, I'm curious to know uh, if you if you can give a quick synopsis of what the what the ins and outs of that debate are on the meaning of the term. Well, I mean, I, I don't necessarily dispute that it comes from this idea of to beat or to flatten out or something, but I just don't think that that thereby implies that it has something solid in in mind. I mean. Just as a simple analogy, I mean, the standard word in the Bible for kind of skies or, or, or clouds would be something like Shechakim, which is still used in modern Hebrew today, just for the clouds. And that also comes from from the, the verb like to beat or to like from from a different verb that means to beat or, or thin out or or crush. And so it can describe dust um, as well. And so it, it's a fine word to describe clouds because they're made out of these tiny um particles and dust clouds and, and so forth but i don't think it therefore follows from that that the bible views clouds as these kind of solid things that you could stand upon or that, that form a barrier or or something like that um and so i guess just by sort of parallel reasoning i, I don't think that um the etymology of rakia the, the common the word that's normally translated firmament i don't think that kind of from that it follows that it's it's viewed as this solid dome but what, what you're saying about the um uh parallels with the sanctuary then makes a a, a lot of sense to me if, if jim does actually view it as this um uh this expanse anyway then yeah that makes sense you do have in uh, genesis one twenty uh the creation of the birds who fly above the earth across or in uh, uh, over the face of the, the firmament of the heavens. So, I mean, clouds moving again, I go back to what Peter said, and Jim has said this many times, the phenomenological kind of approach is that when you look up, you see a dome and you see birds flying, you know, before the face of it and clouds moving across it. Uh, and when you look up at night, you have, uh, a seemingly dark dome with uh, specks, with holes in it, with light coming through it. Um, that That's not a scientific explanation. Um, of course, we know that, but it doesn't mean it's not true, not accurate. It's the way God made the world, not just to look, but to be for average people. Now, if we're going to look into, you know, what space is all about and planets and stuff. That's, there's nothing wrong with that, but that doesn't necessarily contradict the, um, the way it's presented here in Genesis one. 
Yeah, I wonder if the, it sounds, James, like the um, your suggestion would be uh, at least consistent with the uh, what what Lewis says is the medieval conception that um, human beings on Earth are not really looking out but looking in. Um, I, I wanted uh, maybe uh, maybe this would be a, a concluding sequence of discussion, but I wanted to highlight the way that Jim kind of ties understanding of typology of the heavenly pattern replicated on earth to an understanding of the church's mission and work. The spirit is the agent through whom the uh, heavenly light comes down to earth. Initially, the spirit is always the agent by which heaven comes to earth. The incarnation is, a, is, is a, occurs through the, through the agency of the spirit, the, the renewal of the church as uh, the renewal of the people of God uh, happens at Pentecost with the procession of the spirit from heaven to earth. And human beings are filled with the Spirit so that we can be agents of transformation and glorification. Uh, but like Moses, like David, like Ezekiel, like John, we need the pattern, the heavenly pattern, in order to know how to replicate that. Uh, and Jim, has, I think, has two different ways of talking about that. One is uh, Scripture functions as our pattern. Uh, so we want to shape the earth so that it becomes shaped in the way that the Bible instructs us uh, as the Bible instructs us. We want moral conduct to be shaped according to the commandments of God. We want societies to be shaped according to the heavenly pattern that's delivered in the heavenly book that is the Bible and the commandments of God and the, the way that the Bible describe, describes how societies should function. We want uh, art and uh, architecture and music that somehow reflects these biblical uh, these biblical uh, patterns and this this biblical matrix. So that's one way that the, the Bible functions as a, the Hebrew term is tabnet, pattern. The Bible functions as a pattern. Uh, the other thing is that the, the sanctuary functions as a pattern. And when, so I think the the overall sequence is that you have a heavenly pattern replicated on earth in the sanctuary, the tabernacle, for example. But that sanctuary is not only a replica of heaven, but that sanctuary becomes a tabnet, a pattern itself, and the world is to be patterned according to the earthly replica of the heavenly pattern. So, the sanctuary becomes a model for the way the earth is to be organized. And so, in, in the New Covenant, we have, that, we have that reality where the Spirit forms the church, the heavenly pattern is imprinted on the church, and then the church becomes, uh, the church is the anticipation of the new Jerusalem as anticipation of the new creation. The church becomes the tabnet um, along with the word, the church becomes the tabnet for the rest of the world. So that's an, another way of saying what I said at the beginning, which is that the, uh, the way that Jim understands typology, it's not just a way of uh, seeing scripture or reading scripture, but it's a way, uh, it's a way of thinking about uh, the world as a whole. It's a, it is a kind of, it's a kind of cosmology, but it's also a way of understanding the church's mission in the world and uh, what God intends to do through his people with the creation. One way of thinking about this is through the imagery of um, the communication through waters. And so if we think about the relationship between heaven and earth, one of the most obvious connections is that rain comes down from the heavens and communicates life to the earth. And so the fruitfulness of the earth is very much a result of the gift of rain. But then there's also this way in which we see the archetypal sanctuary of the Garden of Eden and the ways that uh, water, water comes up in a spring and then flows out from the Garden of Eden to water 
the land. And so you have this divided river into four different rivers that water the, the wider world. And then you have that imagery used for the way that water comes out from the tabernacle or temple. So particularly in the temple with the water chariots, the bronze sea, and the way that that imagery is taken up in the book of Ezekiel and elsewhere, as water flows in the 47th chapter out into the world and heals the salty water and gives life to all the banks alongside. And we can see that developed even further in the book of Revelation as the water of the river of life, the river of life flows out from the New Jerusalem. And this is something that applies also um, for the church. The church is given the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is a spring welling up within, and that water flows out to give life to those around. It's imagery that Christ uses for the person who believes that the spirit that he gives will be like living water that is a spring welling up within that gives life. Again, Christ uses it of himself in referring to biblical prophecy that out of him will flow rivers of living water. And so all this imagery is drawing upon the same principle, which I think has always been a, a very, it's been an archetypal image for thinking about our work at Theopolis, for instance, this commitment to the life of the church as that which gives life to the world, as the water that flows out from the spring of worship will lead to the renewal of culture and society and our various polities. And that image is something that is applied, as we've seen, on many different levels, from the heavens to the earth in the gift of rain, from the higher land to the lower land in the coming out of the waters from the spring in Eden in the garden, and then in the heart of Christ flowing out to the wider people and in the heart of each believer flowing out to the people around them. And so each one of us is supposed to be like an oasis within a wilderness, wherever we find ourselves. And that gift of life is a different way of thinking about what typology involves, where on earth, as in heaven, is expressing something of that flowing out of the pattern that is first established in heaven, then upon in, then in the sanctuary, then in the life of the people, and then further out. We see this in so many different ways in scripture, the movement from one stage to another as the work of God expands out. For instance, the ordering of the camp of Israel, starting off in the tabernacle, then dealing with the order of the priests and the sacrifices, then dealing with the Levites, then dealing with the order of the whole camp, then dealing with the order of the whole people in the land, and then with what those people will do to the whole world. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.